Hey there, and welcome to the Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast of Crossroads Community Church here in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name's Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. And I'm Scott, and I'm one of the partners here at Crossroads. And today we're continuing with the series that Beth started for us last week called With Us. And Jim's taking us in a, in a kind of an interesting direction to talking about the genealogy of Jesus, which is generally not the most exciting part of Matthew. I don't think people turn to that and quote out of that very often, but we're, we're diving into it. Yeah, we sure are. And I like it that we're getting into this genealogy because, right, this is, this is part of the Christmas story too, right? Uh, the genealogy. And if it wasn't for all this, the past, there wouldn't be a Christmas yeah, well, I think we misunderstand sometimes the point of genealogies are not just so you can remember, you know, like a 23andMe, know where you came from. It's really to prove, you know, someone's honor or their reputation, right? So this is like a resume, like Jim's, Jim uses this idea of a resume, right? And so just like anything else, a lot of times we see resumes where people maybe highlight certain members, you know, like if you do that 23andMe, you find out you're related to Abraham Lincoln, you're like, oh yeah, cool. And maybe there are other people in history that you wouldn't want to say that you were related to. And maybe you kind of, but Jesus weirdly brings out these four women, well, five, including Mary, but women were not emphasized in genealogy. So that's a really interesting choice. It is a fascinating choice. Uh, the, 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 the women who were brought out in these genealogies, Rahab, Tabar, Ruth, Bathsheba, just wow, the stories that they have are not necessarily the stories you'd uh, tell at the Christmas tree. Right, they're not the ones that Linus, you know, tells <laughs> his, his cute little, you know. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And so today we're diving into a couple of them being Rahab and Tamar and uh, really interesting stories of, um, you know, incest and um, prostitution and just not what you think of when you think of the Christmas season. Yeah. Merry Christmas. That's right. <laughs> bah humbug, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll go ahead and listen to the message, and we'll get together afterwards and talk about it. How's everybody doing? Y'all look great. Wasn't that just great this morning, all the Christmas stuff happening? It's just, it's the season. It's upon us. So thank you for being here today. If you're visiting, as we said in the video today, thank you for being here, and uh, we would love to get to know you back there at the, uh, at the tables, and so uh, let us know. We'd, we'd love to meet you. If you're listening online for the first time or on a, for, for a regular, on a regular basis, we'd love uh, having you join us. So thanks for being with us today. We, we've been starting, well, we started last week a series called With. Uh, Beth, uh, Pastor Beth, began the series with this idea of uh, the picture of the two chairs reminding her this summer that Though at times we feel alone, God's presence is always with us. It was in the discussion of that that, the, that we begin to talk about what, what about that uh, spending time just on that word for Christmas. And it's a pretty amazing uh, word when we think about the fact that Emmanuel, the, the word that so many know, even those who don't attend church, but it literally means God with us that God actually shows up, not only just to those who love him, but to all. He is with us. Um, I, I love the story of Beth told about her little girl that was sick, and 
just laying down at the foot of their bed, even though she wasn't any better, that sigh that she heard that's from her, that sense of, oh, I'm, I'm with mom and dad. And well, it was a beautiful picture. And uh, I, I thought, well, my kids are grown, so this is as good as I can get. Um, <laughs> what I call doggy devotions. Um, I'm convinced my, my, my dogs know the word. Um, but it was interesting this week, this happened, and, and, uh, and, and as I was reading, I heard that little one right there. We call her baby dog. I can't even remember what her real name is, but our grandson calls her baby dog. Therefore, she's baby dog. And she let out this big sigh, and I thought, isn't that interesting? All of God's creatures understand with. Isn't that interesting? You see, God's promise, Pastor Beth said, and his follow-through to be with us is based on his character, not ours. Huh. Isn't that beautiful? It really doesn't matter whether we've invited him or not. He promised to be with us, and he will be with us. Hmm. God is with us even when we don't feel it. You know, there's a difference between what I know and what I feel. I can know the Bible, and the Bible tells me he is with me. But you and I both know that there are times, though we may know he's with us, we don't feel it. We feel alone. We feel like perhaps he's with others, but not with us. But the fact of the matter is he's with us even in situations that clearly don't look like he is with us. He's even with us when we're convinced God wouldn't want to be mixed up in the messiness of our situation. He doesn't wait to be invited. He promises based on his character, I will be with you. Hmm. I think a promise like that ought to come a little fancier, you know, like neat and clean and clear with a trumpet announcement. But no, he promises to be with us in spite of what we may be going through. Why do I say that? <clears throat> In the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the story begins with the lineage of Jesus, okay? Matthew's Gospel records three sets of 14 generations leading up to the birth of Jesus. We see on display Jesus' pedigree, proving that he was indeed the one God promised. God's promise to be with us took generations, and many of those people that it worked through were not perfect. You see, a pedigree or a lineage is something that, uh, that, that we generally try to be proud of. I don't know how many of you have ever taken one of those tests, you know, where you send in your DNA and, and you, you, you spend a lot of money and you, you, you get the report back and you discover that you're not related to anybody famous. <laughs> you're like, what a waste of money. Yeah. <clears throat> it's always cool though, when you find out that you're distant grandmother dated, you know, Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Almost. Not quite. You know, my grandpa Halbert says, don't look too closely at the Halbert genealogy tree. There's too many swinging from ropes. <clears throat> Sometimes you, you're proud of your lineage. Sometimes you're like, yeah, yeah, well, let's not talk about that. We actually have historical 
proof that Herod, at the time of Jesus, had people in his family he would not mention because he was embarrassed. He just, like, got rid of them. But isn't that interesting? A pedigree is kind of like a, a job resume, you know? You highlight those things that you were awesome at, and you just kind of don't mention those other things, hoping that nobody digs too deep. See, we're used to messing with our lineages. We're, mess, we're used to messing with our resumes. Jesus of all ought to have messed with his lineage, except he didn't. In fact, in the lineage of Jesus, some amazing things happened, and no one expected Jesus' four great-grandmas to show up for Christmas because these are four of the most embarrassing, salacious stories of the Bible. <laughs> and there they are. Merry Christmas. Wow. Wow. Against historical precedents, Matthew mentions five women in Jesus' genealogy. Women were never mentioned. Sorry, ladies. They were never mentioned in the genealogy. Never. No ones. And here Jesus has actually five women, including Mary. Besides Mary, he mentioned four others, and they were not all reminders of wonderful events in the life of Jesus' family. What does this have to do with him being with us? The fact of the matter is he is with us through not just the good times, but the difficult times. First of all, is mentioned is Tamar, who acts like a prostitute and commits incest. I know you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, this is going to get awkward. You were, well, I'll be careful, but we're going to talk about it. Then there's Rahab, who is a prostitute and lies to protect her family. Then there's Ruth, who also is a Gentile, who boldly offers herself in marriage to a complete stranger. And then there's Bathsheba, the only, uh, actually Mary's Jewish, but Bathsheba's Jewish. But Bathsheba commits adultery, then stands by while the man she slept with kills her husband to cover up their sin. And then she marries him. And Jesus includes these women in his lineage. Three of them, Gentile. Gentiles alone are considered unclean. But to be a Gentile who sins grievously, they're very unclean. But here, they're in Jesus' family tree. According to Jewish law, a sinful Gentile is unclean and cannot be touched, but clearly Jesus cannot be contaminated by our sinfulness. In fact, when Jesus touches the unclean, they are healed. Amen. So Matthew does something that no one else has done. And he tells the story of how Jesus came to be with us. And the story is not neat and clean. Matthew 1 says Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. If you remember, Judah was one of the sons of Jacob, which also included Joseph. Judah was the kingpin in coming up with the brilliant idea of doing away with their younger brother, Joseph, 
who winds up in slavery in Egypt, who, by the way, rescues God's people many years later. Judah is not the most ideal candidate to be in the line of Jesus, but he is of the tribe of Judah, which is where Jesus comes from. So when you look at this, whose mother was Tamar, you might be tempted to think, well, Tamar was obviously Judah's wife, right? No. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. That's a little awkward. So what's going on here? uh, Tamar was was a pretty tough lady. In fact, we're going to talk about Tamar, and we're going to talk about uh, 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 Rahab. These are the first two grandmas mentioned in Jesus' story. <laughs> and no matter, no matter what the Christmas songs tell you, these two grandmas, there ain't no way a ranger is going to run over them, okay? <laughs> They're tough. So Tamar is married to Judah's first son named Ur. Without going into great detail, Ur was wicked, and God killed him. So she, according to the Assyrian law of the time, the Middle Assyrian laws, a woman then was then given to the next man in the family, the next brother, so as to carry on the family line. Now, she doesn't have any children at this point. But the idea is... When Judah dies, he's got three sons. He's going to divide the inheritance three ways. And generally, the firstborn is going to get the biggest share. So the second brother is thinking, if I uh, uh, marry her and I have children with her, she's actually going to get the biggest share of the inheritance and her children, which will be my children, will get it. So the second son comes along and his... uh, uh, and. He gets killed too because he refuses to impregnate her. So now she's down to the third brother. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Judah, I might start thinking twice about this whole law. She's been married to two of my sons and both of my sons have died. I'm not sure she's the best match for my third son. (laughs) You might be able to kind of, you know, Understand that, but her th- the third son was young, and, and so what he did was he, 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 he qual- called her a widow, which was a word that was given, and it has, it, it, the word widow here means two different things. If you call a woman a widow and don't send her home, she is then free to remarry. But if you call her a widow and send her back to her own parents' home, that means she's going to remain a widow the rest of her life. She can't remarry. So what does he do? He calls her a widow and sends her home to her parents. Not only will he not give her the third son according to Assyrian law, he's actually hindering her from ever having children. Wow. Doesn't sound very fair. Now, according to the same middle Assyrian law, in a case like this where there are no more children, a father-in-law can, if he chooses, to have a child with that former daughter-in-law because of inheritance issues. They will set aside the law of incest for that, but he doesn't do that. He, in fact, sends her into eternal widowhood. 
But as the story goes on, it was at that time of year called harvest. Harvest in the Bible, whenever you come across the, uh, the, the stories of men going to harvest, and it was always men going to harvest, not women, but men, you can always assume that there will be rivalry and drunkenness that goes with it, okay? It is sort of a, a given. Things happened at the threshing floors that didn't happen at home. In fact, it was true that some women who were prostitutes would go to those places to make themselves available. It was at that time of year, Judah goes off to the threshing floors for the time of harvest. And now his daughter-in-law, Tamar, decides to dress herself up as a prostitute and sit beside the road. And Judah, being true to his colors, solicits her, and he says, she says, what will you pay me? He says, I'll give you a young goat. She says, you don't have any goat here with you. He says, yes, I know, I'll get it to you. She says, I need something to prove that you'll bring it back to me. He says, okay, here, take my staff and my seal. Okay. The deed is done. This is where we pick it up in Genesis 38. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. She gives birth to twin boys. And those boys are in the line of Jesus. Why does he say she's more righteous than I am? You might think that Tamar just wanted to have children. The fact of the matter is, without her, the lineage of Judah would have stopped. Huh. She was actually looking out for his best interest. Wow. <laughs> Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't it interesting how he got there? Even through scandal. And Tamar is Jesus' grandma. I don't know. I don't want to invite her to Christmas. I mean, that's a little embarrassing. Now Matthew goes ahead and talks about it. Then we come to this verse. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. The story is told about a woman named Rahab. She lived in a town called Jericho, a city, a fortified city that was just on the west side of the Jordan River, below the Sea of Galilee and above the Dead Sea. And here she lived in a, in a, in a home built into the wall. When I take groups to Israel, this is one of the places I want to take people. Because when they can see the archaeology for themselves... What they discover is in the last hundred years, as the dirt was pulled away from the, 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 
you know, the ancient city of Jericho, those walls that were built to protect at one point broke and fell outward, creating a natural ramp right up into the city. But there were walls all around, and in those walls were some homes. Those were not the protected homes. Those are the homes that are going to get the, the first uh, hit first in, in an attack. But it was in these homes that oftentimes people who were poor would live, or in some cases, prostitutes. And it was in this home that our story takes place. Joshua sends spies into Jericho to find out what's going to happen because they're about ready to cross the Jordan River and take possession of the promised land. Now, Moses did that 40 years earlier. They came out of Egypt. They went through the, the Red Sea. They came out the other side. And according to Numbers, Moses appointed the head of each of the 12 tribes of Israel and said, I want you to go into the land and spy it out. I want you to go in and find out what we're up against. So they come back and they all say, it's awesome. It's amazing. But the people are huge and we're going to die if we try and take it. Ten of them said that. Two of them named Joshua and Caleb said, it doesn't matter. God is with us. We can do this. Let's do it. But those 10 had more influence over the people. And so the people said, no, we can't do this. So for 40 years, they waited in the wilderness until that generation who said no died. Now here they are, 40 years later, the children of those who have died, along with Joshua and Caleb, by the way, they're still living. You got to love those guys. And Joshua is leading. So what does he do? He does exactly what his predecessor did. He sends in, in, in uh, uh, spies, not 12, but two. We don't know who they are. We can speculate, but we don't know who they are. It is likely that he would have sent the head of certain tribes. Now, because of the mention of Nashan, we, have, we can assume that he would have been one of the ones that went in. Why? Because the tribe of Judah is the lineage of Jesus. They didn't know that at the time, but this is how God works things out. But Nashan would have been old. It is likely he would have sent his son, Salmon, as a spy. So, the story picks up in Joshua 2. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab. You see, word had gotten out that they had gone there. Why? Well, that's what happens sometimes when people come in from out of town. They stop by Rahab's house. Okay? Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they've come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier. But I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk and as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax she had laid out. What, what, what do you do with flax? Flax is a, is a product that you grow, but you, you take that and you weave it and you actually can make rope out of it. It's pretty amazing stuff. So the king's Men were looking for the spies along the road, leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. Leading to, I don't know how close they got to the Jordan River, but that would have been something else to get all the way down there and look on the other side of the river and realize there's about a million Jews staring at you in the eyes, you know? <sighs> okay, so they run back. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is in terror. 
And she goes on to great detail explaining all the things that she's heard about them and how they've conquered the land. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. And the oath was this. She said, please protect my family. So they said, okay, when we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all of your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be inside the house. If they go out into the street and, and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we're not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied, and she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window, which is probably the rope that she let them down on. Hmm. The scarlet rope. Interesting. The Old Testament doesn't really talk about Rahab very much. In fact, some have speculated perhaps because they weren't real proud of her. But it's interesting that James and the writer of Hebrews mentions her. In fact, James says this about her. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? James, the, the author of the book that deals with the issue of how can I have faith and how does works fit into that, he uses two examples in his whole letter, two examples, Abraham, the father of the faith, and Rahab, the prostitute. That's powerful. He uses her to illustrate what real faith looks like. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. All because of a red cord. It's an interesting thing. We don't really know much except for the fact that the red cord is mentioned. She tossed it out the window. Perhaps the very cord on which she lowered them. Oh, the theologians and the philosophers over the past thousands of years have speculated as to why red. Perhaps because she had flax there, she was a maker of ropes. Maybe she dyed them red. Some have suggested that perhaps maybe because she was a prostitute, the color was like kind of hanging a shingle out. We don't know. It's speculation. But what's really interesting to me is the word for rope in the Hebrew. It's tikva. Tikva. Tikva has a very concrete meaning in the Hebrew. Um, Dory's book that's coming out this spring, uh, The Office with Two Doors, she, she talks about this. She says, though hope is, somewhat, uh, is a somewhat abstract idea of expectation in English, the word for hope in Hebrew, tikva, is more concrete. In Hebrew, the word means expectation. And it also means cord or rope and comes from a root word that means to bind or to wait for or upon. Tikva is a rope that we can hang on to when the world seems out of control and when we do not know how to make it through a difficult season in life. You see, the word tikva is translated as hope. But it's also translated as rope. 
You've heard of soap on a rope? This is hope on a rope. <laughs> I, I asked her if I could put that in the book. She said, no. <laughs> no sense of humor. And sometimes this is all we have to hang on to. That's all she had to hang on to. But her hope was in the promise that was made. And in fact, the whole city was wiped out with the exception of Rahab and her family. Isn't that an interesting story? It's a fascinating story. Her hope of gaining life actually turned into a blessing. Hmm. And let's just say, by the way, that one of those spies was Salmon. Can you imagine walking into that place? She looked at him. He looked at her. He said, how you doing? <laughs> and not only does he rescue her family, He marries her. And they have a little boy named Boaz who ends up being the great-great-grandfather of King David. Her hope of staying alive turned out to be even better when Jesus said, you'll be my grandma. Isn't that interesting? Salmon met his Gentile wife in a house of prostitution. Wow. When grandma comes to Christmas, oh boy, oh boy. How do we ever, what do we conclude here? That lying is okay? That adultery is okay as long as it's for a good reason? No. Nowhere in scripture would support that. Nowhere can we find support for that. So we realize, well, that's not the answer here. Why in the world would these two women, not to mention the, the two that we're going to talk about next week, why would these show up in this story? I think the first thing we need to understand here is that God can work in spite of us. When he promises to be with us, it's not conditional on our behavior. When he says, I will be with you, in fact, my name, Emmanuel, means I am with you. That means whatever you do, I'm still showing up. Even if you don't send me an invitation to the party, I will crash your party. That's right. God can work in spite of us. These two women are mentioned actually to shed light on the sinfulness of Judah. In this case, next week on David. In spite of their sinfulness, God can redeem a sinful decision on our part. That doesn't mean it's okay to sin. What it does mean is that there's nothing that I've done that he can't heal. He can forgive. 
There is nothing that I have done in my life that prevents his withness. He will show up because he promised to show up. His promise to be with us is not based on my character. It's based on his. I may have to live with the consequences like Judah did and David did, but I do not have to live with the fear of punishment if he has stepped in and made this unclean person clean. He's not bothered by my past. His plan is his plan. That means God is not diminished or sullied by our uncleanness. No. His touch makes us clean. He promised to be with us and we can't stop him. You don't have that kind of power and neither do I. He will be with us. Emmanuel. Hmm. Jesus isn't embarrassed or hindered by our blundering or sin. Nothing we've done can prevent him from being with us. When he promised to be with us, it was not conditional on our good behavior, but on his character and promise. Now, I can live my life without his presence in my life because I refuse to be forgiven. But no matter what I've done, I can turn to him and his touch can make me clean. And even those stories that I would rather not remember end up being woven into the beautiful story of salvation he's telling through my life and yours. There's nothing, nothing that we've done that can prevent him from stepping in and making something beautiful out of our lives. Amen. Yeah. So if Christmas isn't about forgiveness, I don't know what it is about. Do you struggle with knowing he is with you? I didn't ask if you struggle feeling like he's with you. We all struggle with feeling. But if we know the truth, according to his word, the truth tells us he is with us according to his character and promise. Do you struggle knowing that he's with you? Do you feel like your own sin has hindered him or prevented him from stepping into your situation? Have you been forgiven? You can be by simply thanking him for his forgiveness. Letting his touch change your uncleanness and make you whole. A friend of mine, Jill Whedon, who attends Crossroads here, she's from Scotland. I asked her to read a passage of scripture and I recorded it. It's a beautiful passage from Psalm 25. A psalm written by David, who we're going to talk about next week, who committed horrific sin. And the beautiful words that come from this man 
remind us of how we can ask for God to restore us. Would you do me a favor this morning and just close your eyes and listen now as Psalm 25 is read. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. I wait for you. There is no one else more worth waiting for than the arrival of Jesus. Because when he comes, he is with us. And he alone can heal us. Yeah, definitely uh, Jim's taking it in a different direction than your usual this is not your usual cast of characters around the manger. The Moabite prostitute and the woman who committed incest. My goodness, yeah. it's I don't hear it this very often, right. uh, these stories, uh, Christmas time. But yeah, Jesus had quite the family lineage, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, I, I, you know, and, and what's really cool is we can see, you know, with Matthew being the author of this gospel... He's bringing out some stuff that purposely, right, to show the kind of people that maybe the people that Jesus is attracting are not the people you would expect. And the stories that, that Jesus is proud of are not the ones that you would expect. And so we start with uh, with Tamar. And uh, just an interesting story, especially if you don't understand kind of the ancient Near East, that this was a very common thing, like Jim said, where, you know, if, if an heir couldn't be produced, the, the brother would have to fulfill that role. And the whole point of that is to keep the clan whole, to keep the family whole, that, uh, that that son's portion of the land would not just be swallowed up, but actually it would be, be able to stay with his wife and stay with their son. So they would create a, an, an heir that would kind of stand in for that, that son. And so for keeping the family whole, this is incredibly important. Well, that, did that just show you that it's not everything is as clear cut or wrapped in a bow as you'd like it? She's doing 
the right thing, really. You know, as you said earlier, uh, by by committing incest here, uh, keeping the family whole, and oh my goodness, um, what ethical dilemmas you know I'm thinking of today. I mean, and things like that. It's 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 just a fascinating um, yeah story. I I think it's something we can't take till today. Like obviously, incest in in our modern context is very different. yeah, that's this is true. obviously right. Her father-in-law, and uh, technically, he he could, if none of his sons could produce an heir, it was a legitimate thing to do to um, have the heir with that the patriarch of the family. And so, actually, Tamar is doing something that is within the law. So she's mm-hmm. not doing something terrible. No. Um, it was, still would have been seen as salacious, especially the way that she did it in pretending to be a prostitute and kind of tricking him. Um, but we can see actually her goal is to keep the family whole. Her goal is to make sure that she and her son are taken care of, which is the point of the law. And uh, Judah, in trying to protect his last son, maybe, and also possibly in you know being a little bit worried about Tamar, um, you know, in a bad way, not really worried about taking care of her. You know, he's not doing the right thing, and actually she forces him to do the right thing that he should have done all along. And he tells her, "You're more righteous than I am." Yeah, yeah, good for Tabar uh, for what she did, uh, doing the right thing and uh, keeping the family whole. Yeah, which yeah. now we see in the genealogy of Jesus, it's a good thing that the family was whole, right? Obviously, God would have accomplished it, but part of the way He accomplished it is through Tamar, which is which is kind of crazy. It's very crazy. Yeah, it's very crazy, uh, and the same with uh, Rahab. Yeah. It, but it's interesting too, you know. One, one, just to wrap up the Tamar and oh. Judah story. Yeah, you're good. I I do want to talk about Rahab, but one thing I think that's really interesting is this uh, passage comes up in the middle of Joseph's story, seemingly out of nowhere. We're kind of in the middle of Joseph's story, and suddenly we get a weird little story about Judah and Tamar, and then it goes back to Joseph, and we'd kind of go, "Why was that in there?" Well, then we see at the end, you know, Judah is the brother who sells sells out Joseph, and then at the end of the story, we see he's the one who is willing to sacrifice himself to save his brother. And so we're like, whoa, what happened to Judah? And I think we can say part of what happened to Judah and part of what the storyteller in Genesis is trying to show us is part of what happens to Judah is this episode with Tamar, that it changed him. Hmm. That's a good thought. Good. That's a good thought of a, I guess, diversion of, you know. Right. What happened there right. in the midst of the Joseph story. Yeah. So not only do we get this in, you know, little piece of, God continuing this lineage that leads to Jesus, but also mm. God changing the heart of Judah in order that we can see this uh, this change later and when he talks to Joseph. But yeah, you, like you're saying, mm. let's talk about Rahab. Yeah. Rahab, the prostitute uh, who had faith. Right. Uh, right? These Israelites said uh, she she didn't tell the truth, right? But, and she but, put her but hope in the rope. A, that's not good though, right, Scott? It's that's not good to not tell the truth. Well, you know, this is what we were talking about. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I've often thought if, um, uh, if I'm in Germany in 1942 and the Gestapo comes to my door and says, "Are there any Jews in your house?" If I have some, in my opinion, I think it would be the virtuous thing to say, "No, there's no Jews here." It would, it right. would be, uh, it would exercise faith in God on my part uh, to not tell the truth to the Gestapo. Yeah. And I, I, so I think there's a hierarchy of values here. Uh, I definitely think there's a hierarchy of values. That That's obvious to me. And so uh, no matter how you define lying, 
I mean, personally, I define a lie as an unjustified telling of something you know to be false. But whether you define it as an unjustified or justified, regardless, I I think what Rahab did here uh, was good. And I I think anyone who would lie to the Gestapo, or not lie, just not tell the truth to the Gestapo, uh, is doing good. And uh, it just brings up some interesting ethical uh, situation there. Right, which is part of the conversation, right? Why does Matthew, you know, bring up Rahab as this, uh, you know, why why would he bring him bring her up in this, you know, genealogy, this lineage of Jesus? Clearly, this foreign woman, you know, and so many of these women that we're encountering are foreign, which is really interesting, you know, that they're foreign women being brought up in the genealogy of somebody, just not normal. And so here we have, I think part of that is that Matthew's trying to ask that question. What are the type of people that Jesus is attracting? Are they foreigners? Are they some of them the people that we thought as not worth it? Because it was prostitutes as well who were drawn to Jesus. And I just think it's really cool to see yeah, Rahab who showed her faith by believing in God, by putting her life on the line to protect you know, the servants of this God, and she ended up becoming a part of Israel. Yeah, she did, and you know you can't help but think it in our lives today. Who are, who are the people that God is working in our society or in our individual lives right. who we never would have dreamed? Yeah, uh, God could work through or would work through, but He yeah. is. And my mind just—I I can't help but go there um, when I hear the story of Rahab hmm. and thinking, "Huh, I wonder who." Uh, I wonder if God is really is using this person. Yeah, that's I mean, cool. Well, and it's something that we believe here, that God uses us on this podcast and uses us to serve our church and to serve this community. Um, even though, you know, Scott, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not excellent. <clears throat> sometimes I am that person who um, people look at and go, God's going to use that person? But mm-hmm. but he does. And that's what something God loves to do. And so as you're listening to this today, Uh, know that you are welcome at our church, and that is uh, unequivocally true. It doesn't matter who you are uh, or what you've done or what the world thinks of you. Uh, Jesus has drawn worse than you to himself, and he has done amazing things through them. And so you are welcome at our church. And so we hope to see you here someday. And until then, keep listening to the podcast, and we will see you next week.